Good. John chapter 12, please. If you're in there, you're going to follow along with us. We're in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And uh, let me get my water here. Okay, John 12. Now, we've been going through the gospel of John, but uh, each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each bear witness to a different aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you put all four of those kind of pictures together, you kind of get the whole picture of who Jesus really is. For example, Matthew, the book of Matthew, presents Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. Amen? And that's kind of the focus that Matthew has. And the book of Mark portrays Jesus Christ as the model servant. And that's kind of like the angle that Mark gives you. And uh, Luke, Luke actually was a medical doctor. That's why he traveled with Paul, who was very sick all his life. And Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus Christ. He seems to talk a lot about Jesus as the Son of Man. That's a favorite line that he likes to use. And John, well, we've been reading a lot, what we've been studying through now, which seems like an eternity for you, but is far from it. But John shows us Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, he focuses on Jesus Christ's deity as God manifest in the flesh. But I say that to say this, because even though John is focusing on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, you could still see in the book of John that Jesus Christ was fully human as well. For example, uh, if you look at John 12, we'll see that if Jesus Christ was fully human while he was also fully God, he had to experience all the points we experience as human beings. And in John 12, you'll notice that Jesus Christ, the man, was troubled. Right there at the beginning of verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is, now is my soul troubled. Troubled. Now God doesn't get troubled. God doesn't get worried. God doesn't get nervous. Even if everybody in the world turned around and said, we don't believe God exists, he wouldn't be like, oh my goodness, I'm right there next to the tooth fairy now. You know, he's not going to get nervous like that. But people get troubled. You get troubled. Human beings experience trouble. So for Jesus Christ to be that perfect Savior, he had to not only be God, but he had to be man. And as a man, he had to experience some trouble. Haven't you ever been troubled? Upset? um, Unsettled? Confused? Maybe a little bit distraught? I wonder, what could be troubling Jesus? You ever think about that? What could be troubling Jesus? That's what I like to talk to you about today. Troubling Jesus. It only appears three times in the book of John. It only appears three times in all the Bible. That Jesus was only troubled three times in all the scriptures. And those three times correspond with three things that trouble Jesus. So we're going to talk about troubling Jesus. And we're going to see and, and ask ourselves, are you, am I, troubling Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you. We pray, Lord, today that uh, thank you for the shout in the camp. Let us now sober our hearts and minds, Lord, and look into your word. Dear Holy Spirit, talk to us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. 
Feed your church, Lord. We want to be better, Father. We want to love you more. We want to be stronger. We want to be uh, more in tune with you. We want to walk closer to you, Father. We want to be better dads and husbands and moms and daughters and sisters and friends and Christians. And we want to be better, Father, but we confess that we can't be better unless you help us. And except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Help us, Lord, to give an attentive ear to what you have to say. But your Holy Spirit, do something supernatural, Father, that we can't explain, that we would know that you were here in our midst speaking to us out of this book. Not feelings, not goose flesh, Father, but the Word of God applying the Word of the Holy Spirit, applying the Word of God to our hearts. And if someone sits here today and says, I don't know who Jesus really is, may today be the day of someone's salvation. And we trust you, Father, to give the increase. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to turn maybe a page back to John 11, uh, John chapter 11, John chapter 11, the first thing that troubled Jesus. Again, I'm talking about troubling Jesus, right? If you're taking notes, troubling Jesus. What could be troubling Jesus? Well, I got number one right here. Jesus Christ was troubled by unbelief. Jesus Christ was troubled by unbelief. Now, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, if Faith is what pleases God. And it's not blind faith. It's not like close your eyes and jump off the roof and Jesus will catch you. No, it's a calculated, reasonable faith. God said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. There is nothing unreasonable about this Bible. There's nothing unreasonable about trusting Jesus Christ. It's the most logical, reasonable thing you could do is to give God's word a hearing when it's changed so many lives and Jesus Christ has literally changed the course of history It's a good thing to see what all the hubbub is about. And if faith is what pleases God, then a lack of faith, i.e. unbelief, will trouble Jesus Christ. And in John 11, right there in verse 32, we're at a funeral, a very sad time. And you'll notice at this funeral, at Lazarus's funeral, Jesus Christ's disciples and friends were quick to doubt him. And we're quick to question him. And we're quick to think that surely, Jesus, you don't know what's going on. You must have done something wrong. You dropped the ball, Jesus. John 11, 32. Uh, Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, And the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. You know why he was troubled? Because everybody, including his good friends and disciples, Mary and Martha, thought the least of Jesus in that moment. It was so quick to doubt him. Jesus, what were you doing? I asked you to come and my brother died. You dropped the ball, Jesus. And that unbelief, that lack of faith in what he might be doing, because they couldn't understand troubled the Savior. He was troubled in the Spirit. Can I ask you a question and don't answer out loud? Do you know how it feels when people close to you doubt your intentions? You know that sting? It's, it's, it's troubling, isn't it? When you sincerely testify of your love, when you sincerely testify of your best interest at heart, but they don't and they won't believe you? Oh, that's troubling. I mean, I'll say amen for you. That's troubling. 
And if you look back at John chapter 11, and you look at verse number one, look what it says here in John 11, one. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. You know, Lazarus' sisters knew that Jesus Christ loved Lazarus. They knew it. They said, Jesus, the one you love is sick. Come on, come and help him. Hey, you know he loves you, right? Can I, no, no, I was weak. Do you know Jesus Christ loves you with a love beyond the love that you've ever experienced? He said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And can I tell you something? You're more than his friend if you're saved today. You're a child of God. His love, he says, you're accepted in the beloved. He says he loves you with an everlasting love. We prayed in the prayer room. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hey, come on, splash some spiritual cold water on your face. God loves you. Take some water out of this book and slap your face with a little bit and remind yourself that God loves you. It's weak. See, I I don't, you don't believe it. I could tell you don't believe it because you've been hurt by people. And you think God is like people. God is not a man that he should lie. When God says, I love you, when God says you're accepted in the beloved, guess what? God means it. So let me ask you again. You know God loves you, right? Amen. Okay. They knew it. Look at verse number four. When Jesus heard that, he sa- heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So, The sisters know Jesus Christ loves Lazarus, and right there, Jesus Christ assures his disciples that everything's going to be okay in the end. Hey, you have that assurance, right? See, it's weak again. You've been watching the news too much. If you stick with Jesus Christ, everything's going to be okay in the end. All right, now I'm starting to get a little bit. You're waking up a little bit, right? When this thing is over, Brother Josh brought some good verses. That was a good Holy Ghost kick in the pants there to like remind ourselves that God is in control. God hasn't slipped or slept. What the Bible says, he that keepeth thee shall not slumber or sleep. So let me just remind you, like Jesus reminded his disciples, that this thing you're going for is for the glory of God, that I will be glorified thereby. So whatever valley you're walking through today, if you would just stick with the Savior, it's going to be okay in the end. There isn't a problem in your life right now if you're saved that if that trumpet blew, it would be gone and everything would be perfect in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, right? Everything's going to be okay, saints. Heaviness in the heart of a man maketh it stoop. You've been listening to too much bad news. Rebuke that spirit and turn it off. The Bible says a good word maketh it glad. You want to cheer your heart up? The Bible says think on these things and cast down imaginations that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. So we got that assurance. And then in verse five, the Holy Spirit throws in a bonus. The Holy Spirit steps in and goes, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see how the Holy Spirit sticks his foot right in the passage there? And the Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus Christ really loved them. Even though they were going to go through a heartache, he wanted them to know, and he wanted you to know, Jesus Christ really loved them. 
And I know some of you are going through deep waters. And some of you have deep waters yet to swim. Can I just remind you on behalf of the Holy Spirit, Jesus really loves you. He doesn't want to hurt you. He doesn't want to break you. He's just got something bigger he's working out. And you know what the Holy Spirit does right there? What the Word of God does all the time. The Bible is trying to remind you that Jesus really loves you. It's a little weak there. You got to enjoy that, saints. This Bible is when you open it up, the Bible may rebuke you, but faithful to the wounds of a friend. The Bible may chasten you, but it's only because he chastens you as a father chastens his son. God really loves you in Jesus Christ. And that's what the Bible is meant to remind you of. Now we say amen to all those things, right? Amen, amen, amen. Verse number six. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Woo, that's tough. <laughs> Lord, the one you love is sick. Oh, I love him. I'm just going to wait here and let him die. Woo, that's tough. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough, 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 tough. Hey, what happens when God doesn't do things the way you thought they should go? Do you stop believing? That's what Mary and Martha did a little bit, just a little bit. I'm not yelling at them, but a little bit. You see verse 21? See verse 21, what happens? 21, he hits up Martha first. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Verse 32, Mary chimes in, same words, end of the verse. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. You know what they're doing right there? Both Martha and Mary, they seem to be accusing Jesus Christ a little bit. Kind of accusing them of failing them. Of Jesus, you know, you you dropped the ball here. I prayed this way. I sent this way. And you did this. Like, I don't, what's going on here, Jesus? Why weren't you here? And that troubled the Savior. When he saw everybody weeping, everybody wailing, everybody doubting God's goodness in that moment, he was troubled. Can I tell you, when God's ways disappoint you, are you as quick to charge God. You know who was a great man in the Bible? Job was a great man in the Bible, wasn't he? You know, Job lost his stuff. Job lost his servants. Job lost his home. And then, man, I can't even fathom it, Job lost all his kids in a single day. You know what the Bible says at the end of Job 1 that none of us will even ever aspire to? I don't know how holy you think you are. I don't know if you ever scratch the surface of this, and I am not apprehended this. But the Bible says, after Job lost all that stuff, he went to prayer. And the Bible says, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. You know, when all that bad happened to Job, Job didn't shake a finger at God and say, Lord, if thou hadst been here, where were you? What's going on? What's happening? Why'd the report come back this way? Why'd they say that word at the doctor's office? How come this one passed? Why didn't you answer that? Job never shook shook that finger at God in that moment. Now, I know he got a little messed up later on in the book, but in that moment, God said, look at this servant. And the Bible points to Job as a great man. You know why Job was so great? Because he didn't accuse God. Just because he didn't understand what was going on. Just because that sponge inside his brain didn't know what the infinite alpha and omega was up to, he didn't say, God, what are you doing? And get mad and run away and curse God and die like his wife said. And in a world where people are so quick to charge God, how do you respond to adversity? Now, I don't mean adversity of your own doing. 
If you're an idiot and you did something because you're an idiot, then that stuff you might be dealing with is God reminding you you're an idiot, right? So, you know, if you put your hand there and start hitting it with a hammer, right? When God said, don't hit it with a hammer and you feel pain, don't wag a finger at God. He might make it fall off because you did that to yourself. But when you're doing the best you can and you're doing the best you know how to and you're trying to love God, read the book and do things and the trouble still comes, how do you respond to that adversity? When you're like a Martha or a Mary who is in one moment anointing Jesus Christ like, a, like the ultimate servant and then you lost your brother? Wow. If you were in that crowd at Lazarus' tomb, would you be troubling Jesus or would you be trusting Jesus? Think about it. Look at John eleven twenty three. 23. Look at John eleven twenty three 23, right there in the passage. John eleven twenty three. 23, Jesus is trying to comfort Martha, and Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know. I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You know what? We're a lot like Martha. We know Jesus will take care of it. We know Jesus is good. We know Jesus loves us. We know all things, right? We all know Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. We know, we know, we know. Yes, I know. Yes, I know, Pat. I know, I know. But do we trust God when we don't understand? It's easy to trust God. It's easy to believe when the sun is shining, The prayers are getting answered the way you're praying them and everything makes sense. That is easy to trust God then. And I'm not rebuking you, I'm exhorting you. I confess, it's easy to trust God when the kids are healthy. It's easy to trust God when everything's going smooth, when the money's coming in, when church is full, when the brethren are all getting along together. It's easy to trust God when the sun is shining. But do you doubt God as soon as the clouds roll in? When he ruffles your feathers a little bit, does he, do you doubt him? Do you stop trusting his heart because you can't trace his hand? Did you forget who God was? Did you forget the one that loved you? Did you forget the one that said, it's going to be okay, just stick with me? Why do you think he said that to you? Because he knew for the sisters, rough roads were ahead. And I just want you to realize that I am not meant to destroy you. I'm just trying to draw you a little closer to me. Somebody said this one time, if God was faithful to you yesterday, and say amen if he was faithful to you yesterday. Okay, okay, you're outing yourself now. If God was faithful to you yesterday, this person said, you have reason to trust him for tomorrow. Hey, if you're saved here, say amen. amen. Jesus Christ has taken you from the family of Satan and put you in the family of God. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, which no man has ever done and no man will ever do of his own power or spirit. You think he can't handle your problem? He was faithful to hold the stars in orbit yesterday and the planets in their places. He was faithful to get you up this morning. He's faithful to keep your heart beating. He's faithful to put some food on your plate. He was faithful to save your soul. And he was faithful to get you out of the last 10,000 problems you got yourself into. Why do you think he's not faithful to trust you where you are right now? He says, if he was faithful, and you know God is faithful, why when it hits your proverbial fan, are we so quick to say, Lord, where are you? If thou hadst been here, you dropped the ball. 
and start stomping our feet and running off like a child. When God says, I, I love you and I know what I'm doing. Amen. You know what that does? That troubles Jesus. It would trouble you if you've been at, you know, helping people, helping people, helping people, and the minute something ruffles the feathers, you just stiffen up like a peacock and walk on down the road. You know what that does? Wouldn't that trouble you, moms and dads? Wouldn't that trouble you? Hey, it troubles Jesus. Corey Ten Boom, she went through the Holocaust. She hid Jews during World War II, wound up getting put in a concentration camp. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a Christian. But she wound up getting implicated in hiding Jews, and they threw her in the concentration camp, and she saw her sister die in a labor camp. And you know what Corey Ten Boom said? Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Don't you know who God is? This is the one that when your back's against the wall, he parts the Red Sea. This is the one that gives you manna from heaven when you're in the desert. This is the one that can get you water out of a rock. This is the one that can rise again from the dead. This is the one that can make any man a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is the God of Elijah we're talking about. This is the God that does all these things in the Bible we read about and all the things we testify about and all the things we know that have happened in our personal lives. Why would we be afraid to trust tomorrow to him? If God, as our dear Pastor Dean always says, if God was big enough to save your soul, don't you think he's big enough to save your life? Never be afraid, brethren. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Look, I know what's on the news too. Brethren, it's all going to get worse. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. The Bible told us evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. There's going to be more violence in the land. There's going to be more licentiousness in the land. There's going to be more wickedness in the land. We ain't getting better till Jesus Christ comes back. So don't be disturbed. The Bible says when you see these things, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. It should encourage you that, wow, it's going to hell in a handbasket. Wow, I better buckle up and put my tray tables in the upright position because I'm ready to fly away, all right? I was sitting down there yesterday, and we were out there on the corner of Hazlitt and 35, and we had a great day, the handful of us that got out there. The weather was nice. And, you know, I was just looking up there, and I was alone. You know, Andrew, we'd go on that little island by the grass over there, and I'm looking at these people that wouldn't give a flip what my sign said or what I was preaching, and I just started looking up at the blue sky, and I was like, I'm going to fly up there one day. I'm going to fly away one day. I'm not stuck down here. This is not my destination, right? I got a heavenly city I'm looking forward to. And in 1 Corinthians 13, now I say all that to say this. If a lack of trust troubles Jesus, can I say this? That a lack of charity will trouble this church. You know what charity is? It's right there in verse 4. We're talking about charity, verse 4. Charity suffereth long. And he gives all these attributes of charity. I think there's like 13 or so of them. I forget the count of them. But he gets down to verse 7, and he says of charity, it beareth all things, it believeth all things. Meaning charity is God's love in action, right? Love is this way, right? I love God. That's this way. Charity is that love that I have for God this way going this way to you. Right, that's charity. Now, the Bible says charity believeth all things. That doesn't mean charity makes me believe everything in the Bible. That means that charity, as I'm dealing with my brethren, as I'm dealing with you, I'm going to believe you. 
I'm going to believe others. That means that I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. That's what charity is, that you give each other the benefit of the doubt. That means when I fall short of your expectations and I mess up, as I always will mess up, please don't say amen again, but I will mess up. You know what? You don't dub me the Antichrist every time I make a mistake. Okay, that's charity. That you don't roll your eyes and say, oh, there we go again. I told you so. That stuff is wicked as the devil's hind leg. That stuff is just a stench in the nostrils of God. That is the opposite of charity. All of you looking at each other fisheye and trying to inspect everybody's warts. Guess what? You're going to find them. If you look close enough, I'll show you. I got a zit here. I got a pore that's messed up over here. You're going to see all my warts. But charity says, I'm going to cover those sins. The way the Savior covers yours. That's charity. And it's troubling, brethren, when we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. It's troubling. When we lose hope in what God can do with people and just think they're stuck and that's the way they're always going to be. That is, get out of the ministry then. Get out. Close your Bible and go shoot pool. Because the Bible says God is able. With God, nothing shall be impossible. That's the God I believe in. That doesn't just mean when you want it to be true. That means all the time God can do whatever he, God could do it. You know what happens to Christians that have been saved for too long? You get to be like jaded cops. I think most police officers, right, got into police work because deep down somewhere they wanted to help people. I think that. You know what happens? They see the muck. They see the mire. They see the filth of humanity. They see the underbelly of how people deal with happens. You know what happens when you've been a cop for maybe 20 years or so? You get a little jaded. You get hard towards people. You always see the faults, and you're always trying to work the angles and make sure nobody burns you, and you cover yourself so you don't get burned. You know what happens? That happens to Christians. Because people burn you, and Christians disappoint you, and Christians hurt you. You know what happens to your heart? It gets callous. It gets scarred, and that scar tissue starts making you numb. And you know what you start doing as a Christian? You start working the angles. You start trying to cover yourself. You start not putting yourself out there. Brethren, you got to put yourself out there. Charity says you're going to put yourself out there if you get burned. That's what the Savior did. You think the Savior didn't know his disciples were going to forsake him and flee? He knew, and he loved them to the end anyway. That's charity. That's the spirit we got to have in here, because it's troubling when we don't. The Bible says in Proverbs 11, He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. Now, I know what that means doctrinally, but can I tell you what it means spiritually? You bring that critical eye into this place, that critical spirit into this place, and you let the wrong spirit into this house. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. Wind is a type of spirit. We're not supposed to be naive bumpkins. I get it. But we're supposed to give each other the benefit of the doubt. If I'm late for the appointment, it's not because I'm back at the bar, you know, like rolling around like a pig again. Maybe I just got a flat tire. Amen, Brother Mark? Amen. Amen. Right? And if God's love, Mark got a flat tire yesterday, last week on the way to church, right? If God's love is working in you, can I just counsel you something? Stop being so pessimistic toward each other and trust God. There's a problem with somebody you see in their life? Go to God first before you keep looking at them with that evil eye right? It troubles Jesus when they don't give him the benefit of the doubt. That unbelief troubles him. But you can go to John 12. Let me show you something else. 
that troubles Jesus. That make any sense there? All right. I love you today. Appreciate you. John, can I tell you what else troubled Jesus? Jesus Christ was troubled by broken fellowship. He was troubled by unbelief, and he was also troubled by broken fellowship. You see verse 27 of John 12 where we started today? Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was troubled by the hour that was about to come upon him. You see, what was that hour, 3 o'clock? Well, if you look at verse 23, the context tells you what that hour was. In 23 it says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So the context tells us that the hour he was speaking about was connected to him being lifted up to die on the cross. That was the hour. You say, why did that trouble him? Was it the nails? Was it the whip? Was it the spear? No, not at all. That hour troubled Jesus Christ because his fellowship with the Father would have to be broken in that moment he became sin for us. And that troubled Jesus. Go to John chapter 8. I'll show you John chapter 8. Can I tell you something, Christians, that are supposed to have fellowship with God? In John chapter 8, you'll see that up until that hour, up until Jesus Christ became that curse on the cross, Jesus Christ had only known perfect fellowship with the Father. Total unity. Not the stuff we go through, right? At the end of the message, you're on a high. Then you go out there and you get all those, those texts that couldn't get through the brick walls here. And you go, oh my goodness. And you lose that fellowship and all life starts to hit you again. You know, Jesus Christ never had that. He was always peas and carrots with the Father. He just walked around and he looked up and the Father was looking at him. And he was looking at the Father. And he just was walking all the time with God right there with him. And in John 8, 28, the Bible says that, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, that's him talking about dying, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. You see that? Up until that hour, Jesus had only known perfect fellowship with the Father. But can I tell you, saints, that in that hour and on that cross, at that appointed time, Jesus Christ would become a curse. He would become sin for us. And that fellowship would be broken in that moment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, you don't have to turn there, for he, meaning God, hath made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin. For us, who knew no sin, that we, sinners, might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'd like you to think right now about the most heinous sin you can imagine. Think about drunkenness and all the lives destroyed by drugs and alcohol. You think about all that. Think about lust. And all the wickedness wrought by unbridled passions. 
the broken families, the broken lives, the diseases, and the death. Think about wrath. Think about murder and all the lives lost in recent weeks from such evil. Jesus Christ became that. Go to John chapter 3. I'll show you. John chapter 3. All the evil that we lament about, all the evil we see in our own lives, all the evil we see in other people's lives. Can I tell you something? Jesus Christ became all that. Right? John chapter 3, verse number 14. The Bible says this. John three fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, verse 14, your Savior was lifted up as the object of all that devilment. He was lifted up as a serpent. He was lifted up as the devil himself. He stood in the place of all that evil so all that wrath could come upon him and your sin could be atoned and be forgiven. And when Jesus Christ was lifted up like a serpent, like that serpent on a pole, a picture of that Old Testament story, when all those serpents were biting the people in the book of Numbers, God told Moses, make a serpent of brass who was the object of all that devilment and all that punishment and all that tyranny that they were experiencing. Put it on a pole, and if you could look upon that serpent with faith, the Bible says you would live. And the Bible says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God took all that evil and all that devilment, and he put it on his son, and his son became sin. He became like that worm on a pole. He became like, you know, he stood in the stead of the devil himself, and God walloped the Son of God with all the anger and all the wrath that your sin, the devil's devilment, and the world's iniquity warranted. And in that moment, wham, he became a curse. And in that moment when Jesus stood in the spot of the devil himself, you know what the father had to do? The father had to turn away. The fellowship was broken. Because in that moment, the son of God became a curse. He became sin. And all the wrath of God was poured upon the son of God. And he was broken fellowship right there. And in that moment, their fellowship was broken. And Jesus Christ could not cry, my father, my father. No. What did he cry? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why didn't he cry, my father? Because in that moment, he wasn't a son to God. He was sin itself. He was the curse itself. And he didn't cry, my father, because that fellowship had been broken. Now he was standing in the place of a sinner and Satan and sin. And he had to cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Woo! What a savior. Now it troubled Jesus. And if you're not saved here today, that's how you get saved. By looking to what Jesus Christ did and trusting what Jesus Christ did. Not about joining our church. If you never come back, join the club, right? Not about, like, you know, putting something in the offering. Keep it. Buy yourself a hamburger. Right? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And if you think you're going to stand in front of God and show him, well, I was a good person, I paid my taxes, I didn't kill anybody, and you're going to look across the throne over there and see the Son of God with holes in his hands and marks on his forehead and a hole in his side and holes in his feet, God's going to say, you're going to put your religion next to that? You're going to try to compete with that? 
Nothing can compete. God said, here's the bar. Jesus Christ is the bar. He says, you want to get to heaven? Trust Jesus Christ. You want to go to hell? Just trust something else. It's that simple. It's that easy. But you know what? It troubled Jesus that your sin would break his fellowship with God. It troubled him. He said, now is my soul troubled. I just wonder, dear child of God, does it trouble you? Does it trouble you at all that your sin breaks your fellowship with God? You know, the most, if you're saved, say amen in here. Okay, good. I'm in the right room. The most important thing in your life, and I say this all the time, is your personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. More important than the job, more important than the spouse, more important than anything is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know why? Fellowship, I'm going to do an electrical analogy, Mike Colleen. Fellowship with God is like the wiring in your home. It carries God's power to all the areas you need it. You say, I want my marriage to be better. Fellowship with God. (laughs) You say, I want to be a better parent. That you need more fellowship with God. I want to be a better evangelist. I want to be bolder on the street. Get closer to Jesus Christ. I want to be more thankful. Look at the Savior a little closer, right? I want to be more prayerful. Get close to Jesus Christ. There isn't a problem in the world that cannot be solved initially by you getting into fellowship with Jesus Christ because living inside of you is the God-man that is the best at everything. He's the best at everything. So if you could just tune into him and walk with him, you'll be a different whatever. You'll be the best whatever because God is God. But you know what sin is? Sin is a break in the wire. And that break in the wire breaks your fellowship with God because the power is lost. It's not getting where it has to get. Things are shorting out in your life. Things are sparking and things are popping and you know why everything's on fire. I'll tell you why. I could diagnose it real easy. You're reading your Bible. You're going to church. You're praying. Oh no, I'm not doing that. Well, Thank you. Just put the money in the plate. I'll just uh, a free diagnosis right there. I'm I'm joking, but that's the diagnosis. You know how many times you talk to people that say, "I'm just not feeling it like I used to. I'm just not feeling the joy anymore." Hey, you're reading your Bible? No. You go to church? No. Do you ever pray? No. Oh, I wonder what could be wrong with you, brother. Right? It's it's fellowship with God, saints. Fellowship with God. You know 1 John chapter 1? 1 John chapter 1. Go over there. 1 John 1. I know, you want it to be something deeper and slipperier and more fancy words around it. But there isn't a problem that can't be solved initially by you fellowshipping with God more. 1 John 1. The Bible says this. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning. That's God, right? Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. See, that's a capital W. That's referring to that word of God, Jesus Christ, before he was written down. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. You see, fellowship with the Father brings fullness of joy. 
Yeah, you may still be weeping, but you can have joy if you're in fellowship with God, even when things are rough. And John over here is saying, we're fellowshipping with God and we want you to fellowship with God so we can all be in fellowship with God and have the joy, 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 joy down in our heart. Where, right? That's what he's saying. I want you to have the fullness of joy by being in fellowship with God. I wonder, are you in fellowship with God? I didn't ask you if you were saved. I said, are you in fellowship with God? I didn't even say if you were in fellowship in this church. You can come to this church and not be in fellowship with God. You could sit here and sing the songs and not be in fellowship with God. You could sit here and amen the preacher and not be in fellowship with God. That is a personal walk with God that you're cultivating. A personal time of talking to him, having him talk to you, being around his people and sensing his presence, learning of him through his word. That's fellowship. That's what it was all about. The Garden of Eden was about the voice of the Lord walking with them in the cool of the day. The voice of the Lord was Jesus Christ. His intention from jump was to walk with people and fellowship with his creation. That's what he wants. If you're not doing that, you're not doing what you were created to do. So you could stuff as many things as you want into that void to try to get a temporary buzz. But if you want joy, you got to walk with God. You got to walk with God. What does the Bible say in Psalm 1611? The Bible says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. You know, that's what God wants from you. He wants you to have fullness of joy. He says, I want you to have your joy be full. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I wonder, do you want that from God? Because he wants to fellowship with you. Do you want to fellowship with him? If you fellowship with him, you'll have what we're talking about here. But if not, well, then you know what you want then, don't you? You're just going to get it all down here. Now look at verse 5. Here's what keeps us from it. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. You see, fellowship's got to be more important to you than your sin. It's got to be more important to you. You can't walk with a holy God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, Sunday up until 1027, and then walk in here and expect a switch to flip, and I could preach my guts out, and we could sing our guts out, and it's going to just magically transform you. No, you've got to cultivate a walk with God on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, and Saturday. So when you walk in here at 1030, you know what? You'll get something out of it because you've been prepared and primed. Now, I'm glad you came today. I'm trying my best to get this thought across to you, but I can't replace your fellowship with God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Nobody is. You've got to cultivate that. And it troubles Jesus when fellowship is broken, when sin breaks fellowship. I wonder, as you look at verse number six, is fellowship with God important enough for you to stay away from sin? I mean, that's ultimately, saints, 
got to be the motivation for why you try to live a holy life. Not so you could be a whited sepulcher that could point at everybody else's sins. No, because, hey, God, you're a holy God. And you said, if I want, I got to be with you, I got to be holy too. Well, then I want to be holy because I want to be with you. Amen. If that's not the motivation, all we got is religion. Right. If it's just me going, you better not do this, and you better not do that, and you better not do this, you'll do it for like a minute. You'll do it for five minutes. You'll do it for five weeks. But then that rubber band's going to just snap back to its original form. You've got to get to the place, Christian, where you're like, Jesus, you died for that sin. They tore out your beard for that sin. They slapped you in your face because of the mouth I have. They pierced your side because of the passions I have. They pierced your feet because of the places I've gone. They pierced your hands because of the things I've touched. They put that crown of thorns and pierced your brow because of the evil things I've thought. You know what, Lord? I want to do my best to not do those things to you anymore. I don't want to trouble you anymore. I don't want to trouble you, Jesus. I don't want to trouble you anymore. If that's not the motivation, if the love of Christ isn't constraining you, what can I do? I can't do anything. I can light myself on fire. Some of you will still be interested by your text messages. I can't do anything, right? But if it's love motivating you, it says, you know what? I want to walk with God. He did that for me, and God wants to walk with me? Man, I want to try to get some of the junk that's going to keep me from walking with him. That's real Christianity. Everything else is just dead religion, even though we have a Bible a part of it. You see, does your sin trouble you because you'll get caught, or you'll get outed, or you'll get embarrassed? Or you might lose some standing with people. Or does your sin trouble you because it breaks your fellowship with God? That's got to be the ultimate motivation. Because it breaks this relationship with God. As Watchman Nee put it, were we to permit to remain even the tiniest little sin which we know our conscience has condemned, we instantly would lose that perfect fellowship with God. I wonder, does sin concern you like that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know myself. Because we could all put on a pretty good game, play a pretty good show, right? Do, put a pretty good act on. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Amen. Good to see you. See you next week. Praise God. Love you too, brother. You know, but is, it, is that sin, are we letting sin in our life and leaving it there, afraid that it would sever and ruin the relationship that we could have with the Savior who loved us and died for us? That's what we call natural affection. And the Bible says in the last days, many Christians would be without natural affection. You don't care enough about walking with God to put some of those toys down. And look, we enjoyed ourselves last week. We ate like pigs. We enjoyed our time. We played. We laughed. It doesn't mean we have to not enjoy life, but it means, hey, who's sitting on the throne? You know, people are very aware and get very upset when they lose connection to their cell phone. Especially if you sit in this auditorium. You're like, I got no reception. I got no reception. It's not connecting. The Bluetooth isn't connecting. Right? People freak out. The website's not loading. It's not. Try again. Try again. I've been trying all. That's how we get. And we're so aware of our connection through our cell phone. We're always watching to make sure we're connected. How many bars you got? I got three bars. Well, I got four bars. You know, I'm going to drop some bars. Give me a beat. No, right? All this stuff, right? We got, we're so, you know what? Do you have the same attention to your walk with God? Does it trouble you at all when you lose your connection with God? Are you even aware of the fact that you might not be walking with God? Is it like, hello, McFly? Hello. Is it even registering? 
Do you even know what a walk with God is like? But you would know what it's like to not be able to connect your Bluetooth to the, you know, to your phone, your phone to your Bluetooth in your car. You'd be all over that. You'd be Googling, fixing it. But some of us walk around completely devoid of any walk with God. And some of us don't even know we're walking without God. We're like good old Samson who wished not that the Holy Spirit was departed from him. Right? You know, Jesus Christ was willing to break his fellowship with God so you'd never have to. You think about that. How, must tr- how it must trouble Jesus to see you throw it all away for something like sin, for that little dirty toy you want to play with. A shame. Last thing. This will be quick. Go to John chapter 13. I told you there were three things that troubled Jesus. We're talking about troubling Jesus today. First thing is, well, Jesus was troubled by unbelief, that lack of faith in him, that quickness to doubt him and accuse him. Jesus was troubled by broken fellowship, how sin got between him and the Father. And I wonder if it bothers you how sin gets between you and the Father. And lastly, in John chapter 13, Jesus Christ was troubled by a disciple's betrayal. Jesus Christ was troubled by a disciple's betrayal. See right there in John 13, 18? He's at that last supper. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And at that last supper, Jesus Christ gets upset because he knows Judas would betray him. And betrayal, oh, it's always a bitter pill to swallow. When friends turn on you, right? Am I preaching to anybody? <laughs> Bittersweet. That's why no one names his kid Judas. You know, I don't think Mark and Kim would toss it. What do you think about Judas? No, no, I don't think that was on the list, all right? That's why nobody wants to be called a Benedict Arnold. That's why treason in the military has been an offense punishable by death. It's that troubling. But Judas, man, Judas had been with the disciples from the beginning. I mean, Judas had seen the miracles. Judas had served in the ministry. He had worked miracles himself. Read it. Read the Bible. He had heard the master's words with his audible ears for three and a half years. Now, I know Bible student. I know, yes, Jesus said he was a devil, John 6. Yes, Judas was a satanic implant. I get all that stuff, or at least I pretend to get some of that stuff. But let's just take it on a human level. On a human level, how troubling to have a disciple turn on you after all that time. Troubling. Troubling Jesus. How unsettling to invest everything in a person who stabs you in the back. Troubling. Troubling Jesus. Go to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4. Here's another name people don't like to give their kids. Demas, 2 Timothy 4. I'm almost done, folks. I really am. 2 Timothy 4. Appreciate your kind attention. 
uh, just trying to help you today. But it's troubling, man. This trouble is Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, verse 9, Paul's in a jail cell. He's at the end of his life. He's about to get his head cut off. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, 9, the Bible says to Timothy, he writes, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. You know how troubled Paul must have been to write that line in his letter? That was troubling to Paul. Wouldn't it be troubling to you? Paul had invested in Demas. Demas had served in the gospel ministry with Paul. In fact, in Philemon, Paul lists Demas as a fellow laborer. He was right there. He was walking hand in hand with Paul. I don't know what happened. Maybe on those visits to Paul in prison, he just got allured by Rome and allured by the world all around him. And suddenly it was, I'm not coming anymore. Right? I'm sorry, I'm not coming anymore. He sent a note to Paul, and Paul had to tell his dear Timothy, all he had was his doctor with him. He said, would you come see me, Timothy, because nobody comes see me anymore. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The love of this world turned Demas' heart. You know what happened to Demas? He went AWOL. He became a turncoat, a traitor, a betrayer. Oh, how many Christians do that? How many Christians are AWOL today? Man, it is troubling. It is troubling to see saints who once walked with God with you betray their Savior for what? Tell me what it was again. A relationship? Hmm. Oh, God couldn't give that to you if you waited on him? Got it. The job? You did it for a job? You sold God out for money? Man, you sound just like Judas. You sold God out what? For, for, for prestige? Because... Youth just thought, I want to hear the excuses, huh? Don't say them out loud, but all those excuses, right? You sold the Savior out for what? For what? Just tell me that again. You know, say it out loud so we can both hear how ridiculous it sounds. You turned down a walk with God and fellowship with God and his people for what? What? Crazy, man, troubling. Troubling. You could tell it's something crazy. And if Demas could serve with the Apostle Paul and still jump ship, brethren, you better be careful. Because if Demas could walk with the greatest Christian that ever lived and still step out of fellowship and step out of church and throw the whole thing overboard, man, we really got to shoulder up. <laughs> because that's what that's. That was a great company he had. He's talking about the guy that saw Jesus Christ and got doctrine from Jesus Christ himself in Arabia. That's who Paul was. And Demas said, peace out, home slice. I'll see you on the other side. He did that to Paul. Judas did that to Jesus. Man, we got to watch each other's back. We got to guard each other's heart because I am not in that caliber and neither are you. But I'll tell you something. I'll warn you right now, those of us that are here. The world has got something you love and the world has got something you want and they're just ready to serve it up till you quit on Jesus. Oh, Demas must have walked around that Roman cosmopolitan city 
And he's going to see Paul, and he must have seen some stuff that just caught his eye, and the devil must have put it right there nice and shiny, or her nice and pretty, or him nice and beautiful, and just put him right in his path. And you know what? He saw those things, and he said, I'm just going to tarry over here a little while. Paul's in jail. I'll get to him when I get to him. And then one week off became two weeks off. And then two weeks off became three weeks off. And then three weeks off became four weeks off. And here we are. And then you're out. Dun, 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 dun. Hey. And then Demas hath forsaken me. Ain't even trying anymore. And brethren, if you think you're not susceptible to that, whoo, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Because the devil knows your number. And he'll dial that number just to get you to turn aside. He knows how bad you want that. Fill in the blank. And he'll take you out there and he'll put those things in your path. Why? So you turn aside and you forsake the Savior that said, would you do it my way? Would you do it my way? You say, no, man, I wouldn't do that. I'm just taking a break. I'm just stepping away. I still love God. I'm not out. Can I tell you this, that there's no neutral ground? There's no neutral ground. When we walk away from church, when we close the book, when we stop praying, you know what you've done? You didn't step into some imaginary neutral ground where I'm just taking a break. No, you crossed over into enemy territory and you're serving behind enemy lines now and you're catering to the enemy's troops now. Don't let that be you. You wouldn't want to trouble Jesus like that. You know what Jesus said in Luke 17, you'll have to turn there. Then said he unto his disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. He's saying, listen, man, people may walk away. People may stumble, but you don't have to be the next has been. You don't have to be the next broken life. You don't have to be the next empty seat. That doesn't have to be you. It's going to happen, but you don't have to let it be you, brethren. That's what Jesus said. Go back to John. Let's finish there. I don't want to trouble Jesus like that. I don't want to be troubling Jesus. He's too good to us. He's been too kind. John chapter 13. Let me show you this beautiful Savior again. John chapter 13, verse number 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour, right, because he died on a Passover, that was his hour, was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. You know, Jesus Christ was faithful like that, even though he knew his disciples would fail him. He never quit on you. He never quit on them. He loved them unto the end. End. You know when you're going through something, you know what you think about? Me, 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 my, 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 my. Right? It's just natural. When you're in pain, I'm not faulting you. It's just natural. You think about yourself. Jesus Christ is about to have happen to him what you know is about to happen to him. You know what he's doing? He's on his hands and knees washing feet. Woo! What a savior. If that doesn't impress you more than a three-pointer from the corner, you got something wrong with your heart. If that doesn't impress you more than a shiny wheels on a chrome wheels on a car somewhere, you got something wrong with your heart. 
That's a savior at the end of his life about to be delivered up to the devil and all the devilment that was going to happen to him and he's down there washing feet. He never quit. Never quit on you. Even though he knew what you'd do to him, even though he knew all his disciples, in a few hours, it says all those disciples forsook him and fled. He still got down and washed their feet. He still ministered to them. He still loved them. That's an amazing Savior. How could you tuck tail and turn on him? Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you for ever ditching on a Savior like that. Shame on you. For, and I'm saying it like that. For dipping on the Savior like that. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on me. I'll put myself in there. Verse number five, he says right there. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. That's Jesus Christ laying aside his glory. That's that garment. And he's allowing himself to get down and humble himself like that and wash your dirty feet, wash all the stuff. That's not washing your sins away. That's washing away this world that would stick to your feet as you go to and fro in this world. That's another washing he's given you. He's washing your feet now because you got saved and you walk around this wicked world and you get dirty down there because those feet that will contact the earth and your savior still wants to get down and wash your feet how could you betray a beautiful savior like that how could you turn on a blessed and bloodied savior like that i don't know i don't ever want to know and i'm not the third part of the trinity the fourth part or the fifth part and i know my wicked heart and i'm preaching at me let's man up Let's realize who this Savior is and what he did. Let's get some steel in our backbone to say, yeah, offenses may come, but I'm not going to be the next casualty. You do have a choice. You don't have to give up. You don't have to quit. Could you be accused of troubling Jesus? Ask yourself. Don't answer out loud, but are you giving God the benefit of the doubt to believe him when you don't understand him? That's faith. Do you count your fellowship with God so cheap that you throw it away for a moment of sin? That's troubling. It's troubling. And have you made up your mind to stay faithful to your Savior? Or, as Jesus said, we also go away? You see John 14, 1? Just turn the page of the look over. John 14, 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, Jesus Christ lived as a man and endured all this trouble. Why? So you would never have to be troubled. Amen. So you could find a rock to stand on and find a strength to get through the problems and never have to be troubled like he was troubled. You make a resolution today. Stop troubling Jesus. Don't bring him any more trouble. I'll speak for myself. I have put Jesus Christ through enough trouble already. I've troubled him enough. You know what? I don't want to trouble him anymore. Do you? I think he's worthy of at least our effort to stop troubling Jesus Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Let's stand together.